0: And what a lot of people don't realise is that just listening to a person and hearing what they've got to say and then summarising it back to them actually changes their emotions because one of their needs at the time is to be listened to. And you'll remember this. One of the key things about emotions is There's the positive and there's the negative type emotions. And when someone meets one of your needs, you cannot help but move into a more positive emotion.
1: From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Nancy Schlesinger. Nancy, I'm quite confident most of you have never heard of before, but I'm also confident you're going to learn more in this show that will help you work with your fellow human beings than any show I've done before. So let me tell you a bit more about this incredible woman. Nancy is the author of over 20 publications, including how to write objectives that work with sales of over 250,000 copies and difficult people made easy a booklet of practical tips for dealing with difficult situations. In 1995, she started a management consultancy and went on to develop a recruitment process that now achieves a success rate of over 91%, compared with the average of 25 to 30% nationwide. Her company, Vinehouse Hiring, now specialises only in recruitment and hiring for small to medium-sized owner-run businesses all over the English-speaking world. Now, before starting her own company, Nancy worked in manufacturing starting at Mars and was also director of an electronics company for a few years later. Most impressively of all, I think you'll agree, Nancy was my own coach for years and is who I credit with helping me to become not just a better leader but a better human being. So just before we jump into the episode, I want to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is VetX Thrive. If you are struggling as a vet, then please, please check this out. VetX Thrive is a community that will help you find your happy place in veterinary medicine. And it does this by training you in the non-clinical skills required for success. Things like goal setting, staying positive, combating burnout, handling rude clients, and much, much more. FedEx Thrive members also get access to the best mentors around the world and are networked together as part of a supportive global community. So if that sounds like something that might help you in your veterinary career to stay happy and stay engaged, then please head to drdavenickel.com forward slash VetX and click on the VetX Thrive image or button to learn more. Now, back to the show. This episode was one of my favorites, partly because Nancy's got so much she can teach us all, but also because she's become a very dear friend and is a wonderful storyteller. I really hope you have as much fun and get as much knowledge listening to this as we did recording it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the phenomenal Nancy Schlesinger. Once again, up in central London, we've been dancing around the globe a little bit recently. been over in San Diego and been in Las Vegas. and I'm back on the home shores in the UK. Um, delighted. Actually, I always like to set the scene a little bit. And so looking out of my window right now, just around the corner, I can see the Tower of London. Which might be quite apt for the subject <laughs> that we're going to be covering today the Tower of London, where lots of kings and queens were beheaded and lots of people were tortured for, for their various acts of treachery and treason towards the crown. Mm-hmm. And so, with that as our backdrop, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Nancy Schlesinger, AKA, well, I like to call her sort of the, the people and performance management guru or Wonder Woman. <laughs> And I don't know how that makes you feel, Nancy, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. That's fine. (laughs) And first of all, we'll just set the scene a little bit, I think, for everybody listening. Nancy, you and I have known each other for a long while. I have known you much longer than you've known me because I (laughs) effectively cyber-stalked you for the best part of 10 years. And I recall our, I'll just tell this story just now to set the scene so everybody feels comfortable, except you, of course, who feel deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) First introduced to Nancy's work by my good friend, Mel Stevenson. Thank you, Mel. Mel and I were walking along, talking about business, and I was on my first germinal thoughts about setting up a, a business to create website content for veterinary practices. And I asked Mel, well, what were the big challenges in running business? And he said, people. Actually, I didn't say it like that at all because <laughs> Mel's quite posh, and he would want oh, people, yes, indeed. <laughs> and he said, so you should really listen to this Uh, amazing lady called Nancy Schlesinger. So he put me onto Nancy's blog, which I then read and bought all of her little booklets and things and and stocked. But I was firmly of the belief that I couldn't possibly afford uh, such a superstar as Nancy. And then when I opened my veterinary hospital, it is fast-forwarding now from 2001 to 2009. And when I... Wait, no, that's not right. 2011, when I opened my first veterinary hospital... And so what I wanted to do is get my objectives and get my, just get my performance management or my human resources documents all in a row. And I was certain that the person I wanted to help me do that was Nancy. And so began a beautiful friendship. So Nancy, it's it's a great privilege to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Dave. I'm going to do less talking (laughs) and let you do more talking now. But I suppose a good place to start, Nancy, is can you take us back? Because you and I have had many interesting conversations, Mm. some over the internet, when you were in England and I was in Australia, so I'm over wine. All of them very interesting, but you take us back to when, you know, let's just go back in time to, you know, what makes Nancy Schlesinger? Where did you get your direction and your drive? Because you, you're one of the people I know that is really inspiring to work with because you do have such an amazing drive and a focus to get stuff done and to do good in the world, which is quite an unusual combination, I've noticed, where does that drive come from tell me back like what built that into Nancy Schlesinger
0: well that is a really good and not very easy to answer question Dave so well done <laughs> I like to make well I like
1: to make them challenging' it's well, not I'm easy. Kind
0: of thinking I mean I suppose it it sort of starts with my family background and there were quite a lot of influences on me from my family so a lot of strong women in our family one of my ancestors was a suffragette and so that was always sort of held up as an example. Someone who went to prison for her beliefs. She spent time in Holloway Prison. We've actually got a picture on the mantelpiece of my ancestor coming out of Holloway Prison. So that's quite an interesting thing wow, to have. Wow.
1: She hadn't even know that. Yeah. How... How long did she spend in prison what did she go to prison for?
0: Well, she went to prison for, you know, some sort of suffragette protest. I don't know exactly what she Chaining did. To herself to
1: railings in yeah, front of Parliament. Yeah, probably something or... like
0: that. So when um, she was in there with Mrs Pankhurst, Emily Pankhurst, so the picture is her and Mrs Pankhurst and some other not very happy-looking ladies in really weird, huge black hats and, you know, dark outfits, uh, looking grim at the gates of Holloway Prison Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to her. She left, emigrated to Canada. We think her husband took her away because being in prison and being force fed, you know, is really bad for your health. Yeah. Um, so that didn't do a great deal of good. But it's, a, it's an example of someone who really stood up for what they believed in and suffered. And, you know, I must admit, I don't think I could have done that. So there's like her on that side. And then on my father's side, um, my father came here as a refugee shortly before war was declared. Because he was German with his family. And there's a great story of his mother, my grandmother, who was what you would call a formidable woman. (laughs) She was great. But there's this story of how when they, they were there in Germany, and one day there was this knock on the door. And my grandfather was Jewish. So it was these two Gestapo officers and they just came storming into the hallway. And my grandmother, of course, knew exactly what they were after. But she just stood there and apparently just shouted at them. I don't believe it. Look at you, two Gestapo officers. Look at my clean hall floor and your muddy boots. What would your mother say? And these two Gestapo officers apparently went back out of the hall, took off their boots and then came back in again. And in the meantime, because my grandmother had shouted so loudly, my grandfather, who was upstairs and my uncle, heard and escaped out of the bathroom window. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, and if you'd met her, you wouldn't find it hard to believe that she'd done that basically. So having those examples, you know, which I was told about when I was young, I guess sort of sets you up in a particular way. And then my dad, who was just 90 this week, was a headmaster of a school for 22 years. And he was the first headmaster of the school. He started it, he built it up. It was not in a great part of town, but it was a really, really good school. And when I went to his school reunion years after he'd retired and some of the the first pupils who'd ever been there came along. And I couldn't believe the way they sort of rushed up to him and they were so pleased to see him. And on his 90th birthday, you know, he got cards from old pupils and all sorts of stuff. And a lot of them, I'm still in touch with a few, and it's just so nice when they say, you know, it's because of your dad that I did this, you know, I got this great education because of what your dad did. And and I can remember the um, speech day, the year that my dad actually retired, and I went along to the speech day, and it was the time of Margaret Thatcher, and my dad gave this speech that was absolutely shocking. He compared what was happening in our education system to Nazi Germany, where... Some people were educated and other people weren't. And he said, you know, this is how you divide a society. You make sure that some people just don't get a good education. And coming from anyone, it would have been a bit shocking. But coming from someone who'd actually been in Nazi Germany at the time... Obviously, adds a bit more of a, a serious tone. And you could see all these reporters who were thinking they were just there, you know, for a sort of boring old speech day, <laughs> sort of madly writing all the notes and everything. And I felt so proud of him. And I wasn't surprised because he's someone who always, always stands up for what he believes in and what's right. He appointed the first female head of science in the area. He was the first headmaster not to have corporal punishment in his school in that area. And, you know, some of his his friends who were also head teachers would say, Well, oh, don't be ridiculous, you can't do that. And he just stuck to his guns and, you know, wouldn't just wouldn't do that kind of thing. He's really, really principled. Did he suffer any
1: consequences by being so principled and being so against or being so different to the system? I mean not against the system, but really shaping its know, course? I
0: don't know that he did. He probably did, but he's never really said, because to him that wouldn't really be relevant he would just do it because it's right. I mean, I met um, one of his old pupils relatively recently, just a few months ago. And she, I hadn't met her before, and she's now head of a school in London. And she said, you know, you were the only person that when I said I wanted to be a teacher said, well, why not? You know, let's do it. And other people had, had said, you know, oh no, you won't be able to do that, but he'd supported her and now she's the head of a really successful school doing a fantastic job. And you know, I've met people over the years just by accident who went to his school and they all say people who don't even know who I am, you know, and they'll they'll say really great things about him. So it's a great example to have someone like that who just stands up for their principles, and he's also a really, really good teacher absolutely superb teacher and I learned a lot from him.
1: So that's an area of interest is Mm. in the you know, the transfer of skills, which effectively is what teaching is. Yeah. A big interesting topic, I think, in any industry, but particularly in veterinary medicine at the moment. What did he do that was different, that made him such a good teacher? Compared to others,
0: yeah. See that when I first started training, when I started my career doing training after doing you know proper jobs and stuff, um, I actually went <laughs> home to my dad and I said, Okay, dad, give me the key things. You know, what do you need to do to be a really good teacher? And one of the key things he said was never ask someone, Do you understand? always ask them, What do you understand?
1: back to those open questions,
0: yeah. It's not just the open questions, though, it, it's the The thing about understanding the other person before you do anything, and that, it sounds like the tiniest little thing, doesn't it? What do you understand instead of do you understand? But it's massive. It's absolutely massive, and it's served me so well. Just that one thing I have used every time I've trained anyone. It's really, really useful.
1: Because people prefer, you know, do you understand? Nobody wants to look exactly stupid
0: well it's not just that people think they understand oh, yeah so, so they're not even lying they go oh yeah yeah whereas if you say okay dave now what do you understand about right taking someone through a disciplinary procedure right it's very different to saying do you understand the discipl- disciplinary procedure and you just go yeah yeah sure
1: yeah and did he then follow that up with i mean how did he you know uh, one of the things I think I have struggled with and people do struggle with is then if people don't understand what they think they should understand, mm. how you then move a conversation to being about in a way that's, that they will still be open to learning
0: Well, to, to get one, them to
1: where you need them yeah, to be.
0: Yeah. That's another good question. And one of the key things is never to make someone feel stupid or look stupid. It's always to make them feel confident and make it as easy as possible for them to understand what they need to understand. And, you know, all my friends used to come round to our house. If they couldn't do their maths homework, they'd just come round to our house. And my dad would just help them with it. And including getting my best friend through maths so level which was, well, most people felt was a pretty massive achievement, I think, including her. But the way he did it, you just felt it was going to be easy.
1: Were there any things in particular he did to make people... You you see people when they're doing training can move Mm. very quickly into almost being judgmental about why people don't understand something. And were there any turns of phrase or methods that he employed that you can recall that that opened people up
0: to him? Well, he had many, many really good examples So if one didn't work, there'd be another one and analogies and diagrams and pictures and just frameworks, ways of seeing things. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned over the years, that when you are explaining something to someone, you first of all find out what they actually do understand. And then the more examples, ways of explaining, models and so on that you've got, the easier it is to find one that actually works for them.
1: And – he sounded like he also had a keen understanding the fact that people absorb information mm. in different ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, which is probably why, you know, we ended up working together for four <laughs> years you had to explain things so many times to me. Look,
0: I think it's also, though, I, I don't think I had to explain things that often to you, let be honest. <laughs> but you see, it's also the the sort of cutting to the chase sometimes. Mm. And I remember a guy I worked with years ago. Now, he was going to be fired unless he changed his behaviour. He, (laughs) he'd thrown a laptop across the room in a meeting with a client, at the client. And he'd had a bit of an argument with a, a door and the door hadn't come off terribly well. And this client asked me, you know, right, we need to, To turn this guy around, or well, basically they'd fired him. But it turns out that you can't do that in France. You have to give a person some help and then fire them if they still don't do what they're supposed to do. So would I go overdo this coaching, and then they'd probably fire him in three months' time anyway. And this guy was like the size of a a sort of large rugby player. And could I just meet him in this hotel (laughs) on my own? And so I did, and actually he was really nice really lovely guy and he basically was saying, Well, I, I can't learn anything new. I I know how I do everything and that's how I do it. And I mean he was a terrible bully. He treated lots of people really badly. He's really sarcastic. And so I said to him, Well, the thing is, if you do not learn some new ways of behaving, you're gonna be fired in three months. That's all there is to it. Well I can't change, he said. I, I can't and I said, Well okay, let's let's just look at this. You speak English, French, German, Spanish, Italian greek you taught yourself um sanskrit and you have a degree in astrophysics and you're telling me you can't learn (laughs) touche sort of grudgingly accepted what i said and and then i said well okay let's look at how you taught yourself sanskrit and then we'll learn this stuff in that same way and that's what we did And he turned around, he became a model person. What did you do? Like, how did he learn
1: his languages then? And how did you put that to work? How did you adapt that into a framework that he could then model or or use within the new context
0: of learning you were teaching him? Well, basically, he just like tried stuff out. And if it worked, then he did it. So we just got some things for him to try. And he'd come back the next week and go, well, that worked. (laughs) because i always say to people when i'm coaching and you'll probably remember this my responsibility is to find stuff for you to try your responsibility is just to try if it doesn't work that's not your responsibility that's my responsibility and most of the time what happened dave it worked didn't it most of the time it worked yeah and you'd be a bit surprised just like him well it worked yeah and yeah so right let's try something else then
1: so the was it the the training of the company that was failing that guy rather than he was a bad fit or
0: it was a lot of things i mean when you've got someone who bullies people yeah um what's often happened is that no one has ever said dave this isn't really a very nice way to treat people there's actually a much better way to do this that will get you the results you want much more easily and won't be unpleasant for everyone else and the person who's doing it just doesn't realise there are other ways to do it. They often don't realise how offensive their behaviour is. I mean, this guy, he was very, very sarcastic. Now, the trouble is, I love sarcasm. It's one of my favourite things. To me, it's like jousting or, you know, sword fighting. I absolutely love it. But I know most people don't like it. Now, the reason I love it, of course, is because I'm quite good at it. And when you're good at it, It's just really, really good fun. So it's just not good fun when you're on the receiving end and you don't know how to deal with it. Right. And as I explained to him and to many others I've dealt with on this, James Bond, when he's, you know, doing his sword fighting and stuff, he never goes for someone who doesn't have their sword in their hand. And when the baddie drops their sword, he almost always picks it up and hands it back to them. And that's what you have to do with sarcasm. You only ever do it with someone who's got their own sword in their hand and can use it. And this guy was a master of sarcasm. His boss was terrified of him. Other members of staff were terrified of him. He was just really aggressive and unpleasant. But I suspect that nobody had ever said to him, "There are other ways of doing this, and this behaviour is really, really offensive." Including his parents and his teachers, he'd been allowed to believe that that behaviour was perfectly acceptable until he met me, and then, <laughs> and then I had to show him some other ways. <laughs> but you know, there are ways of doing this. I mean, I I remember, I mean, with this guy, and this is what I almost always do when I'm working with a a really difficult case is I say, well, let's just meet for lunch and just see if we can get on and, and you know, if, if this might work. And that's when I do most of my work over lunch because they're relaxed. They don't realise we're actually doing anything. If there is a problem, well, I'll just knock over my wine glass or something and, and that will be really embarrassing and I'll look an idiot and they'll just laugh and it won't be a problem. So I know, you know, whatever happens, I can kind of get out of the situation or retrieve everyone's dignity quite easily. And, we can just deal with a lot of tricky things.
1: So before, cause I, I know you're I,
0: casting your mind back to when we last had lunch now. Aren't you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I always just thought you're really clumsy with wine glasses. Well, there is that yeah. <laughs> now I know different. Yeah. Damn it. I wish I never asked. Uh, no, no, but I want, I, obviously yeah. I do want to dive into a lot yeah. more about, how to handle difficult people. Yeah. That's r- really a superpower of mm. yours. Um, but before, because I actually just didn't want to leave off uh, quite finished with your father. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And really the question I wanted to ask was, how did he support your development and your career? Because, you know, he sounds like a very, very principled man mm. at a time when, you know, he saw the suffragettes movement first hand up, up close personal or was it, was that? No, no, a, was that, was, that...
0: that was my, no, that, that was, that was, a great, no, that, that was, yeah, some great, great answers That was yeah, great, great quite a great, great arm. Okay. So yeah, that's, way back. Yeah. No, so dad wouldn't have seen that. So but that, you okay, saw Nazi so, Germany, which I suppose was right just as worrying. Okay.
1: So a very principled man, mm. he saw Nazi Germany up close and personal and he had this heritage of strong women. Mm, I'm sure men mom, as well, yeah. oh, yes, stood up yes, absolutely, for yeah. very much what they believed in. You know, how did that transfer across to you and what support did he give you? How did he approach parenting, I guess, with you?
0: Well, he's always been just totally reasonable, principled and kind and, and thoughtful. I mean, yeah, it's hard to imagine a better father, really. I mean, I, I do recognise that I am incredibly lucky in having him. And I try not to take it for granted (laughs) because he's always just been really generous, kind, always helps you if you want some help always ask him anything. How did he approach discipline? Well, (laughs) I mean, I'm a bit of a goody two shoes, Dave. I I sort of always did my homework on time, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you were unreliable, that did not go down well. You know, if you didn't do your homework, if you didn't get up in time, which my brother quite often did not, he would get really cross. And lateness just isn't in our vocabulary. You know, when I first went to university, (laughs) I went to Nottingham and my parents came up to see me and my dad said they'd be there at half past 12. So I was working till about 25 past 12. I put my stuff away and at 28 minutes past 12, there was a knock on the door and I knew that would be them. And that is just (laughs) how... Side, sidebar notes.
1: <laughs> Nancy arrived yeah. 25 minutes early for the interview and I arrived 5 minutes late which is our cursory half hour time yeah, zone yeah, delay that,
0: You know that's fine
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's move on now really into maybe with early career let's, let's go to early mm. career because your background before you started in, in th- with the work that you do now which focuses on um, performance management, mm. um, from recruitment right through to ejector seat from <laughs> businesses, but largely helping businesses not have to go to the ejector seat in yeah, the first place. Absolutely. Can you take us a little bit on the journey towards? Mm. I guess that massive well of knowledge and experience you acquired, or acquired. Um, how did you acquire that? And and just trace your career a little bit for us.
0: Well. I suppose my first real job was at Mars. I mean, before that, I'd been a. a
1: torch. So that's the makers of
0: confectionery yeah, and yes. pet foods and, and pet foods, lots of electronics other as well, which is where I was working in the electronics part of it. So company. I didn't even know Mars <laughs> made electronics. Yeah, they made coin mechanisms of vending machines, um, mainly or initially to sell more Mars bars. Of course, you know that it makes does, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So I applied for this job, and I mean, I will confess this because you'll love this. I had absolutely no idea what the company did or who they were when I applied for it. Because <laughs> in those days, when I mean, we're talking the early 14th century, you've got this great big book and you sort of looked at, you know, the companies that took people with physics degrees and stuff and Mars was one of them. There was this company called Mars Money Systems. I thought, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I just didn't actually look into them at all. And so I sent off.
1: Did you think it was sort of an Elon Musk precursor, you know, going to space travel <laughs> type thing? <laughs> I
0: just how you could have think. Kind of, I had absolutely no idea. So I sent off whatever I sent off. I don't remember any of that. And then I got an interview and it was this two day event at Windsor. And I had just no idea what was going to happen. But I knew it was two days in this hotel. So my actual goal, this is absolutely true, was to eat as much as I could, drink as much as I could, have as many baths and showers as I could while I was there. Because remember, I was a student. So, you know, those things weren't on tap as far as I was concerned. And I asked my mother, who um, is really good on clothes and stuff. I mean, she's She's the sort of person who can go into a shop and see the one thing on the rail that actually would look really great on, but looks awful on the hanger. So I went to her and I said, right, what should I wear? And she said, well, of course you will have a huge advantage over all the men in that you can wear two different outfits. You can wear something glamorous for the evening and something business-like for the day. And- that will help them to remember you and, and, you know, give a different impression, which was really useful advice. So I wore this stunning dress I had in the evening. And, you know, six months later after I got the job, the HR woman said, you know, I always remember that dress you wore at the interview. And I thought, thanks, (laughs) Mum. That was good advice. Anyway, so I went to this thing at Windsor. And, Dave, I'd never stayed in a hotel on my own before. Hadn't got a clue. How how old were you at this point? I guess I was um, 20. 20, 20 20-odd, yep. Yeah, because I was final year Yep. My degree. And we had this lovely evening meal. And, gosh, I'd forgotten about this, but there was this lamb, um, which was very nice, with what I thought was an onion sauce. It wasn't onions, it was grapes. And I nearly <laughs> choked because I just was expecting the taste of an onion and it was a grape. <laughs> anyway, we, we all chatted and they asked everyone what they did in their spare time and stuff. And there were these five guys and me. And I think there were like four Oxbridge, one from Imperial and me from Nottingham. And they were all, oh, I rode for the eight and I do all these posh things. And then it got to me. And I said, oh, well, um, uh, in my spare time, I sing for a rock band. (laughs) And they were a bit surprised. (laughs) And then the next day we had all these interviews and we had to do these tasks, you know, these group tasks, things that we did and And one of them was where you had to build this Lego tower as a group and you had to work out how long it was going to take you, how many bricks you were going to use and how high it was going to be. And one of the guys was saying, well, how are we going to reach the top of the tower? Because we thought we managed to build it quite high. And I apparently said, well, if we, instead of building on the table, if we build it on the floor, we could stand on the table to reach the top. And apparently that was one of the key things that got me the job. (laughs) actually the funniest moment from that whole experience was the first guy who came out of his interview, we sort of all gathered around me going, okay, what did they ask? What did they ask? And he said, this is absolutely true. He said, they asked me if I thought I was good at making decisions. And I said, well, what did you say? And he said, I said, I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, well, I think that was like a first really major learning point on what an incredibly stupid thing that would be to say in an interview. (laughs) And this guy was just oblivious. Yeah. And obviously he didn't get the job. (laughs) But, you know, I did. And it turned out there were 400 applicants for that job. I had no idea. And my boss said that I was going to have to do a really good job because if I didn't, there would never be another woman for years getting that job. So that was pressure. <laughs> so my boss was really good in most ways. So I, I started off as a graduate trainee, and um, but my training was cut short because they wanted someone in production as a production manager. And so I got a job after a shorter length of training than I was supposed to have. But I mean, that was fine. I mean, I I think I'd done training in HR production and purchasing by then and a bit in accounts. And so I got this little department so there I was, 21, with this <laughs> little department of people. And How many people in the department? I was only, at that stage, it was like six people. I mean, it's quite small, making these things called dispensers. So they were the bits in a coin mechanism where if you, you need some change, it either gives you the change or it gets jammed and doesn't give you the change. Well, these things are about the size of, I suppose, I Sort of half a house brick, something like that. I mean, they're reasonably large, and we made hundreds of these things. With. Same
1: size as mobile phones would have been, actually, at the same time. Yes,
0: about that's. Well, no, oh, there weren't mobile phones then, Dave. No, we're talking much earlier. But than well, thank you for thinking. I was. Young.
1: I was trying. To, I was trying to help you out there.
0: But yeah, they, they, that sort of size. So. um we had a failure rate of 25% the, of these units. So,
1: What was the downstream effect of a failure? Like how much would that cost in hours to have somebody oh, go out, fix the well, machine, oh, no, no. Make a machine, no, that was before, happy?
0: No, that was before they even got off the end of the department.
1: Oh, wow. So yeah. the so things we were like would meet the quality up. standard.
0: We were walled up, they weren't working. yeah, we were walled in by bins and bins of these things because we were making you know hundreds a week. yeah, so we were having like several, well, we had several hundred of these things that were just failed. So my first job was to reduce the failure rate by half, and I had about eight weeks to do it. So I got it down to two and a half percent in that time. And my boss was absolutely astonished and like, how had I done it? This was amazing. And had
1: they set you a clearer objective than reduce the failure rate? What was their.
0: <laughs> well, it was to get it to half. So it was reasonably clear. I okay. Mean, you yeah. know, it, was, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But my boss couldn't understand how I'd done this. And I mean, to me, it was just blindingly obvious, <laughs> really straightforward. So all I'd done was I'd used a Pareto analysis. So I just analyzed all the rejects, I put them into categories, then I put them into order of which failure rate which failure gave us the most rejects. And it was just poor soldering was the worst one by miles. So I just trained all my people how to solder properly because one of the things I did at school was metalwork, which I had to really struggle to do because girls weren't allowed to do it in those days in our school. So I was actually better a soldier than most of the people in my department. And we so are starting people. to see a theme running yeah. through <laughs> the Schlesinger family here. That's right. Yeah, so I, I trained them all in that. That had a massive impact. And there was a problem with these prisms, and that was because of the way they're manufactured. There were various other problems. But I just worked my way down. And pretty quickly, failure rate was minimal. <laughs> and my boss, when I, he said, how had I done it? So I explained it to him and he was like, that's a very odd way of doing it. And I thought, oh, obviously there's an easier way then. So I, I said to him, oh, well, what would you have done? And he said, oh, I just would have tested everything twice. <laughs> I later learned that he wasn't really a very good manager. And I mean, he just hadn't got a clue. It was, I think I had a huge advantage because I was the only woman doing the job I was kind of arrogant and pigheaded and I didn't really listen to other people much. So that doesn't sound like an advantage, but what it meant was I just kind of did things the way that to me was really obvious. So I sort of did quite a lot of things rather differently and luckily quite a lot of them worked. <laughs> Obviously not all of them did. I'm sort of willing to bet that
1: the things that didn't work though wouldn't have been just cast asunder as nothing moments.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, my boss made me tackle every single issue in my department because after after I did that, then I got promoted and I got this like
1: <laughs> hence the phrase what's the prize for a game well played? a bigger game?
0: a bigger game, yeah, that's about it so i I got promoted and I got this really big job. I got um production manager of a really big department. And it was the most complicated mechanical assembly in the department, in the company really, making these things called flight decks that when you put a coin into a vending machine, it kind of runs down this little part of the machine that tells you if it's a real coin and what the value is and stuff. And it was a really tough job. And there were people in that department who, well, one person who was really hard to deal with, and there were performance issues and all kinds of stuff. and whereas my colleagues quite often just got away with not really tackling that kind of thing. My boss just made me tackle everything, which was sort of annoying in some ways, but on the other hand, it meant I learned how to do it. And also he was, although (laughs) lots of people were kind of terrified of him, I discovered because of this pig-headedness that if you went to him with an idea, he'd just like blow up, he wouldn't like it and get really angry. But if you went back the next day, quite often he would have thought about it and he'd accept it. Whereas most people just wouldn't bother to go back the next day because of the initial response. And I suppose just because I was, you know, quite driven, and this is probably some of the ways I learned to deal with so-called difficult people, was I, um, because I wouldn't give up, i just work and work until I found a way to deal with a particular person. And what I also have done over many, many years is whenever I see someone deal effectively with someone, I try to take notes as quickly as I can and sort of work out what is it they did that worked. Because often there are just a few little key things they do differently to everyone else that make it really effective. And so I I kind of spent, well, years just working out how to do that and reading, obviously, and, you know, finding out from other people how they do stuff are there any examples of moments like that that you can Mm. recall oh god i mean there's one fantastic one absolutely brilliant one and where an old colleague of mine and i will mention her name because she's amazing vivian lucy absolutely brilliant and she came into a company that i was at uh, years later into a really aggressive atmosphere and where what happened was a bunch of us we were consultants one of us was really angry about something that had happened. I think she'd had a late payment or something. But I mean, it was, you know, it's a very annoying thing. And this new guy was trying to deal with it. And he just couldn't handle it at all. And this woman was like diving into him and this, that, and getting really, really angry. So this guy said he couldn't sort it out. So he went away and he came back with Viv. And within probably 30 seconds, she <laughs> dealt with it. She was incredible. So Basically, she just listened to what this woman said. She then summarized it and said, So, what you're saying is, you're concerned about this, this happened, and this happened, and you want this, and so on. And this woman just went, Yeah. And Viv then said, Now, how many times has this happened? And this woman said, Once. Well, the rest of us, we were astonished because we thought it had been happening for months from the way she'd been talking. But Viv didn't laugh or anything. She said, Okay, this is not acceptable. Now, I can't sort it straight away, but I will go and have a look at it and I'll come back to you at three o'clock. Is that acceptable? And this woman just, yeah, thank you very much. It was just so elegant and beautiful. And if you look in my tips booklet on dealing with difficult people, you look at the tantrum technique, that's it. And that is thanks to Viv, her amazing dealing with that, what looked like the most nightmare scenario. But she just did it. It's brilliant.
1: She's combined two Jedi techniques oh, into yeah. one there, hasn't she? Yeah. So she, she's taken the angry person yeah. technique and then she's layered on the how to say no nicely yeah, without absolutely. saying no technique. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, there's a, there's a lot of techniques all encompassed in Isn't that there? one thing. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
1: That's interesting. Okay, so I wondered if we would move and one of the i think one of the questions i would have for you and i think a lot of practice owners certainly i've seen in my sphere being mm. in veterinary medicine but i'm sure it's the same in every industry are the challenge everyone has and you and i have spoken together many times and the question that we often ask is what are your biggest challenges mm. and they always come back to people yeah always 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 and actually, I think we've gone to the point of challenging anybody to come up with a problem that isn't really a people person in some way, shape, or form, or even a recruitment person problem, <laughs> therefore. Yes. But what are the main challenges that you have seen people struggling with? Are there ones that come up again and again and again yeah. that, that bubble to the top? And what are the strategies and tactics that people can use to handle mm-hmm. or to not have those problems happening in the first instance?
0: Well... I think one of the main tools that I come back to again and again, and you will remember this one, (laughs) is being clear what you're actually trying to achieve. And that's always the first thing to ask yourself in any of these situations, what exactly am I trying to achieve? Now, sometimes like Viv in that situation, the initial goal was to get a way forward to calm the person down and so on and find out what was really the issue. But it may be the long-term goal was to actually sort that problem out at the root cause, which might've been with the accounts department, could have been absolutely anything, could have been a technical problem, who knows. But that initial thing was, you know, to, to get that person calm and find out the facts. And very often when you've got one of those emergency type situations, I think that's the thing is just to, you know, find out the facts. That's such useful, what are the facts, what happened? That's one of my favourite questions. If someone comes up to you and they're really upset, what happened? Like 95% of the time, that question will actually move things forward. Completely disarms the other person. Yeah, because something will have happened to cause someone to behave in a way, you know, that's aggressive or upset or whatever it is. And what a lot of people don't realise is that just listening to a person and hearing what they've got to say and then summarising it back to them actually changes their emotions because one of their needs at the time is to be listened to. And you'll remember this. One of the key things about emotions is there's the positive and there's the negative type emotions. And when someone meets one of your needs, you cannot help but move into a more positive emotion because that's what positive emotions are all about, having your needs met. So just meeting a need of being listened to helps to move a person forward. So I think that's one of the absolutely basic fundamentals that works in so many situations, I would say. I mean, another one is recognising that people are almost always not deliberately being unpleasant.
1: Right, right.
0: It's hardly ever the case. I mean, (laughs) I'm sure there are some cases. Well, I mean, I know there are, but they are pretty rare when i've come across one in particular that i remember i'm trying to think if there's any more than that probably but it's single figures in you know my many many years
1: i'll give you a good example of this that happened the other day to me Mm. so i was walking away dropped my daughter at school and i was walking along talking to one of the other parents um, lovely lady. And we're just having a chat about yeah. what happened at the weekend and plans for the week were. And she's telling me about her husband and he was working crazy hours. And anyway, we're just having a regular chat you might have. Mm. And then I heard a car engine rev from uh, maybe no more than 30 or 40 yards down the street. And so a little bit of a wheel spin and take off up the street towards us. Now we're, we're stood on the pavement, so we're not in any immediate danger, but this is nine o'clock in the morning, there's parents dropping. Mm. There's two schools locally. So there's always kids crossing the road with parents. And so I had a little bit of an emotionally unintelligent moment, not a big one, (laughs) but just enough to, you know, I wanted to get this guy's attention. I might have given him the stink eye. We'll call it that. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so then he stops in the junction and starts rather erratically maneuvering. Mm. And so uh, me and the other parent had looked away after giving the, you know, the disapproving stink Mm. eye because that'll sort everything out. (laughs) Anyway, so he starts maneuvering erratically and he's just stopped in the middle of the junction. So I look again. And so he leans out the window and and says, what are you looking at? Do you want to make something of it? I'll get out there and I'll (laughs) kick you up and down the street. You know I will and all of this. And you're like, really? Nine o'clock in the morning. So anyway, off he goes up off up the street and nothing actually happens. You know, we just break contact and mm-hmm. I, I, after you know, helpfully pointing out that it was nine in the morning and there was school kids crossing, which did absolutely nothing to calm him down bizarrely. Yeah. I was very surprised you didn't see my point of view from clear, I mean, clearly an emotionally triggered state yeah. and something had gone on that this guy was mm. it, running in the red and just on full emotional tilt. Yeah. So we left that well alone and and just reflected on it. Well, you know, he's probably not that bad of a person and he's probably not a meanie. Mm. Um, I wonder what went on. I was just a bit curious about what happened in his world. And then I yeah. was left thinking, I wonder how I could have approached that differently so as that I could have not had that interaction. Yeah. And oh, I think all empathy and curiosity about what's going on were the things. Mm. And actually I went with judgment in that yeah. moment, which got nowhere. Now, that's interesting in of itself. What's really interesting is, Two days later, cause this is now yesterday, yeah. I'm walking, same walk, dropped my daughter off at the school and coming yeah. past, and there's this guy carrying a mattress from one of the houses up to the, the bins. And uh, I didn't notice initially, but I stopped to let the guy yeah. past. It was the same guy. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> he went, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Was nice as ninepence. walking past, like really polite. Now, he didn't recognise me, yeah. I don't think, maybe he did. And I
0: recognised him and I thought, just a completely different emotional state. Well, he probably didn't recognise you because when you're really angry, what's happening is the information's going from you outwards. Yeah. It's not coming in. So he probably wouldn't remember you, what you said or anything. Yeah. Uh, It's highly likely, but... Yeah,
1: but it was interesting just the difference in his
0: Mm.
1: his state his behaviour yeah you know he was very polite in that moment
0: but you know we've all all done that haven't we we've all behaved badly we've all hated someone when we were driving our car and we think they've cut us off and all that sort of stuff
1: oh dear yes I have a story about that that ends badly but
0: yeah it's difficult and you know it's hard controlling your emotions and being self-aware about how you're coming across I think most people are a lot less self-aware than they think they are.
1: Okay, so that's a great place for us to go. Now, I'm afraid I'm going to drop one of my traditional Dave multi-layered crazy questions on you so you can answer this any way you like. Thinking about the things that are impactful today... You know, the stressors that we all live under, um, the pressures, particularly in a job like veterinary medicine. And Nancy, you've worked within the veterinary Mm -hmm. sector um, with me and with others for long enough to be familiar with the stresses and strains. I'm going to go first to social media, Mm -hmm. and particularly Facebook, where increasingly I feel like that's just a quagmire of negative emotion and and Mm -hmm. really horrible interactions and there's lots of groups, Facebook groups out there. And I'm sure it's in every space, but yeah. again, in veterinary medicine, where very quickly it becomes just pure judgment yeah. and shaming.
0: Yeah.
1: And they're just not pleasant places to be. And so I, sp- I try and spend as little time in them as is possible. So there's that side of things, which is really, do you have any tips on how to behave nicely on Facebook or... When you see someone and Donald Trump is clearly a master yeah. at polarizing people mm. and dividing people yeah
0: and you see you say he's a master Dave but I think doing that is actually easy yeah upsetting people dividing people that's a, the easy thing to do what's difficult is what Nelson Mandela did you know is <laughs> yeah that's really difficult yes and unfortunately this that skill is sometimes in short supply. And the trouble is, I think one person dividing everyone needs an awful lot of other people to pull everyone back together To pull it back together.
1: Well, maybe Trump's the example is just maybe he's the slight hand that that is deflecting attention, or maybe he's just a raging out of control. Who knows? The, Mm. where I'm going with that is, you know, Facebook, when you've not got somebody face to face or when you're in your vehicle, people tend to be much more or less in control. Yeah. And in a veterinary practice where something goes wrong, a lot of veterinary practices have a toxic blame culture. Mm. Are all of these interactions coming from the same root emotional causes? And what can we learn and how do we how can we use self-awareness? And then what's the journey, the stepwise process that we can all learn from to create more positive interactions in our day to days, whether we're on social media or we're in our vehicles or we're in a charged emotional situation in, in a veterinary hospital?
0: Okay, so first thing, and, and jump in if I miss out any of your layers, Dave. <laughs> I've forgotten them already. <laughs> I you know,
1: like I rely entirely on you to. I have made notes. like three-page-long oh, questions.
0: <laughs> so first thing is, if you are even slightly annoyed, be very careful about what you say or what you post anywhere. And one of the problems is, it's actually quite hard to realise that you are a little bit annoyed. So becoming more self-aware and noticing when you start saying you should, they should have done this, he's an idiot. Those sorts of phrases, when they spring into your mind and you start regarding other people as stupid or foolish or you hate them, those are indicators that you're probably not totally in control of what's going on. So if you feel like that at all, I wouldn't post anything. (laughs) And I'd be really careful about even picking up the phone and dealing with my colleagues. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, it's very, very easy to blame other people for stuff. Now, it's actually a lot more dangerous than most people realize. When something happens in your life, you can... Take responsibility for it, or you can blame other people. So, if it's good or if it's bad. So, I might say, um, let's say this conversation didn't go very well. I could say, well, that's just typical of Dave. He just asked really stupid questions. He hasn't prepared properly, microphones up, you know, whatever. I could blame you completely, couldn't I? Or I could say, well, I wonder if I perhaps should have thought a bit more carefully about the sorts of things Dave might be interested in and the audience that he's got. Obviously, I know he's a vet, so it might have occurred to me that. Most of the people listening will be linked to the industry somehow. So perhaps I should have thought of a few veterinary examples or examples they might be interested in. I have known Dave for you know, nearly 10 years, so I know the kind of questions. So I could take some responsibility, couldn't I? Right. Now, interestingly, people who adopt that taking responsibility approach have what's known as an internal locus of control. People who adopt the blaming everyone else approach have what's called an external locus of control and also a life expectancy of about five years less.
1: That's interesting. <laughs> I thought Didn't that know would that. wake you up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I heard this at a conference. I used to go to loads of conferences on neuroscience and learning and brain and stuff. And there was a really interesting um, presentation at a conference called SEAL, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, Society for Effective Affective Learning. It was brilliant. And they used to get all kinds of people from the field of learning. Some of them were right at the sort of bleeding edge, some were right mainstream, and some were just totally weird. But this particular woman, I think it's Rosie Daniels, was the director of the Bristol Cancer Centre at the time. And she'd done some research on um, women who'd got breast cancer. Now, remember, the people who went to this place were people the NHS couldn't really help very much. So they were, you know, in quite a difficult position. And she'd taken her patients and she divided these people all with a similar prognosis into five groups. At one end of the scale, you have the people who were, well, they should have done something. It's not my fault. You know, they should treat me. They should blah, blah, blah. And at the other end of the scale, it was the, what can I do? Can I change my diet? Should I do more exercise? Can I change my lifestyle? Into, you know, the other end of the scale. And what she discovered, and I mean, these numbers may not be exactly right, but they're in the right ballpark, was that after two years, the group who were the sort of blame everyone else group. Only 20% were still alive. The other group at the other end of the scale, the sort of what can I do about this, the internal locus of control, 80% were still alive. And I remember, I can remember where I was sitting. I can see her sat there on the stage thinking, that is a really useful piece of information that I'm going to pass on to anyone in that circumstance. And in fact, anyone who might find it useful. So please bear that one in mind, everyone. Um, if you're listening to this and You know, you notice that you tend to blame other people and situations for things. Once you start to think about it logically, it's quite obvious why people who take control and responsibility last longer because they do stuff about their situation and they take action. It's like, you know, if you've got a pet and you actually take it to the vet when it's not well or for its checkup, chances are it's going to survive a bit longer than the one where you just blame everyone for not feeding it and not doing what they should have done and giving it the flea treatment and so on. So, yeah, that's, I think, a really compelling reason to start thinking, well, what can I do in this situation and what are my responsibilities and how can I help? Now, if you think about, you know, chat groups, we tend not to think that before we write anything. And if you think about, you know, in a situation, like you're talking about a toxic situation or a situation where people are unhappy about things or things have gone wrong... It's very easy to think, oh, that's typical of Dave. He never puts these back or he never fills this card in. But it might be more useful to think, well, hang on a minute. What are we trying to achieve here? How can I help in some positive way? And actually, Dave has been working, you know, 17 days nonstop without a break. Perhaps he might be a bit tired. You know, how's he feeling? He wouldn't want to do this. So how could this have happened? And that's a very different way of thinking about a situation, but it can be hard if you're the only one who is trying to do that. You know, it's, it's tricky to pull people around, but it can be done.
1: And that's layering can in be done. self-awareness mm. with empathy, curiosity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, curiosity is a really good one. Really, really good one. In the transition
1: from, you know, cause people are faced with situations and they happen, at, mm. they happen fast. Like a lot of these flare up things. Yeah. People go from normal to triggered in the moment. Mm. And so are there any ways that we can foster self-awareness? And perhaps, mm. or certainly as importantly, the transition from calm to enraged or neutral to judgment, judgmental, are there any ways that we can hijack that process oh, in a good definitely. way
0: yeah definitely.
1: or re take yeah. control and yeah. then become more yeah. intentional yeah. in our well actions. i think the
0: first thing is and this this will ring bells with you is to find out the facts so to become aware of when these things happen so first thing is to keep some notes of you know when do i notice that i've lost my temper perhaps ask your colleagues because they might be more aware than
1: you are well um, and that's a hard thing for managers to do because now you have to swallow your pride and and let your ego take a bit of a beating right
0: well it depends how you do it you see if you say oh tell me every time i go wrong that's obviously not gonna be great but if you say look tell me when i'm doing things the best tell Mm. me when i'm being the most helpful tell me what i do that helps you the most And then by process of elimination, you can work out, okay, so when I didn't get any of this on Wednesday, that probably wasn't a very good day then. So, you know, what can I do differently? There's there's always a way to ask the question that makes it easy for the other person to give you the information that you need. But that's the first thing you need is some facts about when does this stuff happen? Because we all have triggers. I mean, I know mine is banks. I really, really don't like dealing with banks. Doing forms multiple times. Oh, forms I hate, absolutely hate, (laughs) which is why I employ someone to fill them in for me, as, as you know. But banks, I mean, I only have to step across the threshold of a bank and I can feel my blood pressure going up. So I do not have a bank account where I need to go into the branch. I have a bank account which is all done online. Occasionally I phone people and I have to say they're amazingly good. It's really very different now. But I just became aware that probably some of my worst behaviour has been in banks. Now for, you know, if you, it could be something entirely different. It may be particular types of customers, particular situations, a particular colleague filling in some sorts of forms or when a particular thing happens. But I guarantee there will be a pattern. It could just be when you're really tired. Yep. So that's the first thing is to become aware when it's more likely to happen. The next thing then is to have a set procedure so that it doesn't happen, so that you recognize the signs really early on. And you then say, right, I can see this customer is booked in for 10 o'clock this morning, so actually I'm gonna ask someone else to deal with them. Or I'm gonna take a deep breath and I'm just gonna ask these questions. And I mean, even if it doesn't go perfectly, afterwards you can say to yourself, well, this was better than it was before. Okay, so what did I do that was better? And what do I need to do next time to improve? You know, it's all, I know it's sounding blindingly obvious, isn't it?
1: Almost everything that you've ever taught me does sound blindingly obvious, but is not something that anybody ever pointed out or was something that, because a lot of the things that sound blindingly obvious are actually when emotions get in the way are completely counterintuitive. Yeah, And it's so, I think a lot of what you have done in teaching me is actually teaching me relationship. Judo mm. is taking an emotion and then harnessing that to move in a different direction yes. to where the emotion actually wants to push you. Exactly. So using the energy of anger to then, and then noticing your trigger or frustration. Mm.
0: And it, it's, and, it's noticing the triggers in other people as well, isn't it? And yeah, that's re- I mean, I, you just reminded me, I don't know how, but of um, a guy I used to work with called Jim and he was the guy in charge of the stores and all the merchandise and, and the, the, not the merchandise, the, all the parts and stuff when I used to work at Mars. And he was known for his volatile nature. And I was making this old product. We only had enough parts to make like 47 more of them or something. And I discovered to my horror that we had actually lost like five or 10 crucial parts of these things, which meant, you know, the company was going to lose so much money or whatever. But it, it was not a good situation. Dave, basically it was pretty awful. And I spent several days thinking, how am I going to tell Jim? Cause I knew he'd find out. So I knew it would be better if I told him, but how was I going to do this in a way that meant he didn't totally lose his temper. And I came up with an approach And basically what I did was I went up to his desk, which was immaculate. All his pencils were in line and everything was sort of at right angles to everything else. He was really obsessive. And I just said to him, Jim, I'm just going to light the blue touch paper and retire. And he just looked at me and I said, we've lost these five, whatever it was. And he just burst out laughing. And I thought, yes, nailed it. break that
1: down then what did you do like what's the magic sleight of hand there humor. because it's not obvious
0: it was the humour because I said I'm going to light the blue touch paper and retire so, so just I was just saying look I know you are going go like you're going to go off like a rocket explode. yeah but I did it in a nice loving way
1: I was going to ask why did that work why did that disarm him so effectively and what, well it, what it was the humour
0: once he's laughing and it's the humour there and I've said look Jim I know you're going to explode at this but in a humorous way it's actually much harder to do it. You Can't know, if I say explode. Well, I mean, it's what I call the BMW technique. You know, there's a friend I used to share lifts with years ago to work. Her husband bought this brand new, beautiful BMW, and one day he, he was called Dave. Actually, she said to him, Dave, "Oh, Dave, can we use, go in your new car? It's like a week old, right?" <laughs> and she had this battered old Cortina or something that we normally went in, and somehow she persuaded him. And guess what? She dented the car. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, God, what are you going to say to him? Well, what she actually did was she burst into the house in floods of tears. Dave, Dave, I've written off your car. It's a complete write up. I'm so sorry. I've written off your car and this crash. It's terrible. And he came outside and he said, It's just a dent. absolutely priceless but again that's one for the album and that just went straight into my little book of really useful tools <laughs>
1: <laughs> the art of exaggeration
0: yeah but you know how could he be angry when he thought the car was written off and then it's just this it's little ma- dent
1: this managing ex- managing oh, expectations perfect. isn't it yeah absolutely Wonderfully well. brilliant so sticking with the theme of performance yeah um let's imagine So we talked about talking people down off the ledge yeah, the emotional yeah. ledge as it were what about when you've got people who are let's talk talk about results oh yeah. and we all have people in our teams who aren't the angry people they're mm. not the people the, the angry people are the people that causes anxiety and we often mm. don't deal with them but the other, other end of the spectrum are the people who are actually quite nice but not very good at what they do
0: well yeah
1: How do we handle that?
0: The first thing is always to go back to the objectives. What exactly are the objectives? What do they need to achieve? And do they know? (laughs) I know this is going to sound like a really stupid question, but quite often they don't, do they? They're just not clear on what they're supposed to do and what they need to achieve and how they'd know if they were doing a good job. I mean, going back to your old friend and my old friend, Mel, That's one of his favorite questions, isn't it? How would you know you were doing a good job? Yep. And I know, I think he said when he first asked it, a lot of people just didn't know.
1: No, because we get job descriptions that tell us rough, like I'm going to be a veterinarian and these are going to be my hours. But I don't have clear, clearly defined like, okay, this is what I expect of that. These are the rules. Here's how we do it this way. Very few few places actually have that.
0: And you know, I mean, obviously we've done a lot of work on recruitment and, and we recruit in all sorts of different areas and hire people for all kinds of different companies. And it's one of the things we like to put in the actual advertisement, you know, the key things that you're going to need to achieve. Yeah. I mean, some of the ads that I see for jobs, they're so vague and they're just about selling the job. Yeah. Whereas I think people really should know right at that stage, this is what we we want you to achieve. You know, in your first year, we're just doing one now. You're going to completely revamp the website, and that's going to happen in this time. You're going to set up a dashboard so we can actually run the company using the information you put on there. That's all going in the ad. Yeah, And that will run through, you know, when the person actually joins, that's there, the objectives are there. But that's always the first thing to check. Does the person actually know what they're supposed to be achieving and how they'd know they were doing a good job. And I think probably half the problems can be solved by just getting all that clear and working out, you know, how they would know. Because one of the key things, and this comes on to feedback, which, as you know, is one of my favourite, favourite topics. <laughs> you can tell me to get off my high horse. <laughs> no, no, you stay right on it. It's but great. The key thing is, it's I always liken it to... My appalling sense of direction. I mean, I had trouble get finding here today, as you know. That's why I arrived early because I gave enough time for getting home. You arrived two hours early and just got lost <laughs> no, for No, an hour and a half. no, it was, it was only an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if you've got a sat nav that has a little picture of your car on there and you can see that you are getting closer and closer to your destination, that's basically feedback that's saying, yes, you're going in the right direction and you're getting closer and, and yes, it's only 10 minutes away, and now it's only five minutes away and so on. I once, (laughs) I once got so hopelessly lost. This is the days before Sat navs. that it was dark and I was heading for this hotel. I'd never been there before. Actually, it might have been, but I can't remember. And I saw this sign and it said City Centre. And I thought, yes, but what city? (laughs) Absolutely true. I was hopelessly, hopelessly lost (laughs) because, you know, no centre direction, no feedback telling me. Where I was going. Now, most people in jobs, you know, we're laughing at this, but actually, a lot of people are in exactly that situation in their jobs. So, the first thing is make the goals absolutely clear. The second thing is make it easy for them to know what they need to do to do a good job and if they are doing a good job or not. And if possible, I would get that onto a computer screen. I mean, that's where our friend Mel comes into his own, isn't it? Yeah. And, he, you know, you've got these fantastic screens with little graphs that just show you how you're doing. And it's like you've turned your whole job into a, a video game almost. It's absolutely brilliant.
1: It's absolutely brilliant. Useful stuff. Um, Feedback. On, on the subject of feedback, mm. that is an area that a lot of people struggle with oh, because they feel it's a very combative...
0: Well, they just make it 10 times more difficult than it has to be, don't Okay.
1: They? So what... Are the common pitfalls with giving people feedback on their performance, and what can be done to improve well, the, we just the give quality them a of feedback? Should
0: we just cut straight to the shortcut?
1: Yeah, you? let's do that.
0: <laughs> let's just make it easy for everyone. That
1: was a form of feedback. In case you hadn't <laughs> picked that up.
0: Yeah. So the key thing is actually don't give any feedback at all. Make it easy for the person to get it for themselves. So what you do is, if I were doing it with you, Dave, I'd say, "Okay, Dave." How would you know that you were doing a good job of running this podcast, for instance? How would you know? And then I would say, well, how would you know, you know, because you've done like, what, 14 of these? Fourteen published. This will be number number, number 18 recorded. Yeah. So how would you know that you were doing a good job? job on these podcasts. So what would you say? Okay. So
1: I would say I have a little sound monitor in front of me, which also tells me how long we've been Mm -hmm. recording for. So I can look at the colour indicators as we speak. Yeah. That tells me if the sound level's good. I know roughly the the running time and how Mm. long to stay with question areas. I know the audience. So I get a a more subjective sense Mm -hmm. of what good questions are going to be or where to take the conversation. And then I know a day that I'm going to publish. Mm -hmm. So I've got to hit that date. And then I will look at the feedback, the data from the SoundCloud platform I used to publish on, and that will tell me how well people are engaging with it. I'll look at social, the likes, the shares.
0: So you can There's actually a whole bunch see of how many people are actually listening, can't you? Yeah, you can yeah, see how absolutely. Many people, which is probably the crucial one,
1: right? I would guess. Well, I missed one out. Gone. On. Well, when I listen back to the, oh, yes. <laughs> the actual audio, yeah, I'll just know if it's good or not.
0: Yeah. But I bet you, you could probably work out some key indicators if you put some effort into it, couldn't you? You could listen to say your first two or three and say, actually, if I was going to do that again now, I would probably ask this extra question or I wouldn't ask that question.
1: 100%. Definitely. (laughs) Or I would structure that differently or the audio would be different completely.
0: So actually you don't need me to say, Well, this podcast wasn't very good. This one was better. This question was a waste of space because you can work all that out for yourself. right? So my job, if I were your manager, is to put you in a position where you can get the feedback you need immediately so that you know whether you're doing a good job or not and what you need to do differently. So what I would do if I'm your manager is I would say, okay, Dave, so come back to me on Friday and share those figures with me and tell me your findings and tell me the areas where you know you need to improve and the areas where you think you know things are going well so you just
1: simply have that same conversation with a veterinarian with a nurse and say okay what are you Here are the objectives yeah how would you know if you're going to if you're achieving those objectives exactly and come back to me with a list of measures Mm. whereby we you know you and we can get you the data you need so you always know you're on track
0: yeah you know how would you know as a veterinary nurse you were doing a good job how would you know as a vet you were doing a good job I bet, though, quite a lot of people will just look blankly at you. Right. So you have to kind of help them and have some sort of answers ready just in case. So you might say, well, you know, what about if the animal survives? Yeah. That's, you know, what about how the clients are feeling about it? What about, you know, what they say when they arrive and what they say when they leave? What about the survival rate of the animal? What about the cost of the operations? You know, what about how prompt you are? You know, there, there are all kinds of things, and obviously you'd know what they are. Yeah. But the more you can get them to really start thinking, oh yes, obviously look, the animal survives. Well, that's obvious. And you think well, it is obvious, but you know, let's look at the statistics. I mean, we've got some great friends, haven't we, Anne and Paolo? <laughs> who, um, oh, I just love the work they do who can measure all kinds of things and identify, you know, how well people are doing.
1: Yeah, Pilo, um, Pilo has a great bit of software called Profit Diagnostics mm. based in Australia. Um, look it up. He's not paying for that plug. It really is a, oh, yeah. a, a great piece of software. We're total will, fans, aren't we? Yeah, it will API into virtually any practice management yeah. software and pull out interesting insights into how your team are performing. So yeah, Profit Diagnostics, check it
0: out. Yeah, really, really good. Because all it is, I'm I'm not, you know, sort of oversimplifying here, but it is a way of getting really, really useful feedback on what's actually going on, which then means you can say, well, hang on a minute, you know, this person doesn't seem to be performing as well as this other person. What's the difference? It's not oh, right, we're going to fire them. It's like, well, hang on, why has this person sold all these dentals and this person hasn't sold any dentals? Oh, because they don't actually understand about dentals. right? You know, they they don't realise how important they are. They just don't know the questions to ask the customer or they're just not doing a proper examination of the animal or they don't know how to do it. Usually it's not deliberate. Does that answer your question at all, Dave?
1: Wonderfully, wonderfully. So with feedback, try not to give... Our yeah. personalised, subjective, yeah. judgy feedback. Because well, that's, that's what people yeah. struggle with, isn't it? It's, I'll give
0: you one of my best examples. This is a lovely one. Totally true. An old friend of mine who had a, a student come and work for him for a while. And he said, Nancy, this guy is totally useless in meetings. How do I give him some feedback? You know, what should I do? So I said to him, and this is some advice I got from, um, oh, what's his name? Tim Timothy Galway, who wrote the inner game of tennis, the inner game of everything. Lovely guy who I met once at a conference. And and this is what he said. He said, well, just ask the student to go to some meetings and to identify what he thinks is really effective and really ineffective behavior. Just ask him to do that for two weeks, write it all down and then come back with a summary. So I spoke to Nigel two weeks later. How did he get on? And I just said, oh, it was hilarious. He said he just came in to the meeting and he said, I'm really useless in meetings, aren't I? <laughs>
1: so wait, let just break that down. So the manager of this person yeah. asked him to go to other just, meetings just and to go work to out meetings. what worked and what didn't work yeah. and record it.
0: Yeah, that's all. And just. And that wasn't recording, you know, sound recording, that was just making notes. Yeah, right, right. What was effective and what wasn't effective, and then come back and present those notes.
1: So he was forced to, but not forced, he he then had to gather his own data itself and be more present.
0: Yeah, because the thing is, the information was all there. It's just he hadn't really noticed it or hadn't been paying attention particularly to that. So once he saw it, he knew what he had to do.
1: I mean, I think there'd be a million people speaking using PowerPoint and death by bullet points that (laughs) benefit enormously from, and probably have sat through meetings in that regard. So it's depersonalizing the feedback and making it about data.
0: Yeah. And and getting the the person to do it themselves as much as they can. They'll love it. People love to get that information themselves.
1: Right, nice. I've got like a million other questions, but I am conscious looking at my own feedback here.
0: (laughs) People might be nodding off. You probably have
1: other (laughs) things in your life uh, to do. So, what we'll move into now. And by the way, people, if you are enjoying this and you would like to hear more of this from Nancy, then please do let me know either in the comments uh, on the blog where this will be published or via email or via any of the social channels I operate in at Dr. Dave Nicol, D-A-V-E-N-I-C-O-L. Um, just let me know what you're thinking of the interview because we can always um, strong arm Nancy into coming back. <laughs> we live on the same island. So, we do now. Uh, yeah, we do. So it wouldn't be too hard. All right, Nancy. We're going to move into the short form questions now. So these are more rapid fire. Right? Okay. I've not prepped Nancy with anything. This is in like this mastermind.
0: Interview. I've started, self so finished sort of stuff.
1: It's a little bit like that.
0: <laughs> oh dear. Probably less
1: challenging, <laughs> and you know all the answers already. So you just don't know what the questions are. My <laughs> favourite colour's red. No, I'll just say That's that. not one of the questions. <laughs> what's your favourite colour? No. All right. So, what's been the thing that's made the biggest impact on your career and why? That's a really difficult one.
0: I don't know actually. That's yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Something must have made a big impact. Never had you
1: be empty for yeah. words before. This is this is a first.
0: I think probably working at Mars because it, it was quite tough and you had to, you know. Were you it.
1: so into process beforehand?
0: Yes. <laughs> But
1: yeah. Hence the physics Yeah, yeah, I'd, I don't like a
0: nice process, yeah.
1: Okay, I've called you superwoman or wonder woman already. <laughs> um, what's the thing you do better than anybody else?
0: I don't think I actually do anything better than anyone else. What I do do is I kind of observe what other people do and sort of put it together in a way that adds up to something overall that's pretty good. And that's what I've done. When I've helped to improve people's performance – all I've done is just taken the best of all the people there and put it together, and then it turns out into a sort of super performer strategy. So I think that's probably what
1: I do. Iterative well. design.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, is, I think is so. Is the other word? Kizen,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: That's an interesting word. Mm. You are a very grounded and grounding person. You know, as as you know, I can be a bit more Celtic, yes. occasionally <laughs> emotional. You're very grounded and grounding. Do you do anything to foster that? Like, do you have moments where you feel like you're going crazy um, and how do you manage those or have you had to build or do you have a, a pattern or a routine, something that you do that keeps you grounded or is this just the swan above the lake and actually it's all crazy beneath the
0: surface? No, it's not really crazy. No, I just have like systems and processes and, and if, if I do get a bit like, Oh, there's just so much going on. I just, write a list <laughs>
1: I'm afraid so that's one of the to deal with sort of yeah. overwhelm
0: yes yeah, because it, it's about prioritizing and just being clear you know what like this morning you know I knew I had a certain amount of time so I wrote myself a list just went through the list in order of priority and
1: how do you prioritize what's your method for
0: that well this morning there were some things that absolutely had to be done before I left and some things that it would have been nice if they were done so the had to's went to the top The would have been nice Went further down. In that case, it, it just depends on the situation. Simple as that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, what was the the best? I think you're going to have a funny answer to this. What was the best piece of advice you've either given or you've received?
0: I think it would go back to that one from my dad: "Don't ask. Do you understand? Ask what do you understand."
1: And more amusingly,
0: <laughs> sorry,
1: <laughs> what was the worst piece of advice you've either given or received?
0: I'm sure I have had some bad advice. Apart from work with
1: that bloke, Dave Nichol.
0: (laughs) No, that was good. That was good. And the trouble is I I sort of tend to ignore some advice. I I suppose I occasionally, oh yes, actually I was advised to take someone on to work for me and I did against my better judgment and that was a really bad piece of advice. Yeah. Yes, that was very bad advice. Mm. We've all done that. Oh God, yes uh
1: now the best gift you've received in the last 12 months you're always getting good gifts
0: best gift i've received
1: got me a great gift for my birthday i have to say Oh yes, um, that's good. Wasn't it? <laughs> which was it will come as no surprise to anybody listening to this podcast which was a, a very amusing book of <laughs> flow charts yeah. for it was in consequential in, 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 dilemmas, dilemmas. Which, it's as a good. book, is one of the funniest books that I've read in a, in a very long it's time, right? Isn't it? Um, but so, what was the best gift or the most impactful thing—gift or purchase? You can make a purchase, oh. if you've not had a gift, over the last twelve months that made an impact and why? Ooh! Apart from your spiffing new wardrobe, which oh you- well,
0: actually, I was going to say this ring that I've got because I bought um a really lovely ring when we were at the Edinburgh Festival, but it was not made of very expensive materials. I wore it every day and it was starting to wear away. So I slightly redesigned it and found this fantastic woman um, who made it for me. And I'm really delighted with it. So yeah. It gives you joy. It does. Every time I look at it, I absolutely love it. Yeah. So that's my Christmas present.
1: So going back into the very dim and distant mm. murky past... Um, we're going to take you back to graduation just before oh, the interviews with Mars. Yeah. If you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would it be?
0: Don't worry. Be happy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really try and avoid bursting into song there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's I think too early for karaoke. Okay. We worry yeah. too much about stuff that never happens. And actually most things you can, you can resolve.
1: What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you? But matters.
0: Ooh. Uh, nice controversial thing. Is there anything controversial about me? I don't know? I'm not really a very controversial sort of person.
1: We well, can change the word controversial to you can you can insert any number of more amusing words. Like amusing. What's the most amusing <laughs> thing people don't know about you that matters? Or the most esoteric interest. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So, nice. tell us about what is the most esoteric interest that you hold, and that actually has made a big difference in your life.
0: Oh well, I think that would probably have to be Alexander Technique, actually. Say more. Alexander Technique, which is all about body use, how you use your body, and it's just great. It's um, it's discovered by F. W. Alexander, wasn't it? It was F. M. Alexander. That's right. Um, it's about how you use your body. And I've recently started a new, taking a new branch of it, which is all about singing and how to use your voice. Um, total vocal freedom, which I joined. And it's just great. Yeah, it's improved my voice a lot, my singing a lot, which I still do quite a bit of. Are you still singing in a rock band? No, no, I used to really like that. But I think probably those days are over. <laughs> but I still, I sing early music and stuff now. But yeah, Alexander Technique, because it actually impacts... A lot of different areas of your life and it helps you to keep calm and and not get backache and headaches and all sorts of other things so
1: i should look into that
0: oh you should yeah i've been doing it for about ooh, probably over 30 years and yeah definitely really big impact
1: that is a whole other conversation for another time yeah, i suspect we just stumbled into a, a
0: really good one an
1: entirely new void to explore mm. Okay, last question then. If you could send one tweet to the world or Instagram photo, you don't really do Instagram photos, do you? No. Or or Twitter.
0: No. (laughs) Not so much.
1: If you could send one social media post (laughs) to the world, and everyone could see it, so it could go to every smartphone, every device around the world, what would it say? It's got to be succinct. That's why it's a social media post on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I probably have to be something about being nice. I think we should all just be nice to everyone and think about other people before we think about ourselves. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. There you go.
1: I like it. That's who said that?
0: It's an ancient Chinese one, I think,
1: that was woven into one of my favorite books on leadership by oh. Fred Kaufman.
0: Yeah, could be. Yeah.
1: I'm almost certain. And ties in very nicely to your Mm. being curious and asking what happened.
0: I was very much a really basic principle of mine, actually seek first to understand then to be understood. Yeah
1: which is a lovely place to wrap things up. Um, Nancy, absolute pleasure as always speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time coming on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure.
1: If people, uh, I'm going to give your website a shout out now. So if you are interested in what we've been talking about, I can give my very personal endorsement to Nancy. She was my business coach, my first business coach, I should say. And we worked together for four years. Um, I had my um, veterinary hospitals in australia you can find more she works in the field of performance management recruitment is really where she spends a lot of time she and i have created some some mm. uh, product together for the veterinary market we're not really here to promote that but there's a lot of content if you go to vinehousehiring.com that's v i n e h o u s e h i r i n g dot com, and you can also reach Nancy on email. As we've already discovered, socials <laughs> not, not <laughs> our favourite place to hang out, uh, which may well be why she's so grounded and gets stuff done. It's Nancy n a n c y at vinehouse dot com, um, and um, she would be delighted to take questions and help you solve your people in person personal problems <laughs> probably that as well right possibly <laughs> but you helped me out heaps anyway Nancy thank you so much for your time great to spend time with you again and all the very best thank you just me back for a second before you jump off into the rest of your life or day or whatever. Wasn't Nancy a great guest? Told you that was worth an hour or so of your time. Hope you learned heaps. Now, before you do jump off, don't forget about the VedX Thrive community. If you're struggling, that is a place to go, so please check that out. We want to help you. And let us know how you're getting on with the show. Don't forget to leave feedback on iTunes, Um, leave a star rating, leave some comments, always greatly received. And also let us know who else you'd like to hear from on the show so until the next episode of blunt dissection thank you so much for listening very grateful for all of your time and attention this is dr. Dave saying be well be safe be happy goodbye